Dr. Leron Lamardi um, at Eversy. Uh, good to have you with us. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Eh? A little bit excited. Happy to be here. Well, look, I, I'm I'm really I'm excited as well. And I'm looking forward to having this discussion with you. Um, I know that again, in terms of like the topics we want to discuss, um, a lot of it I have to say is around Israel. And as you and I have previously mentioned, there's just so much innovation um coming out of Israel right now. A country with less than 10 million people, I believe, uh, less than 10 million people, yet arguably it's a uh, uh, the second best country in the world, only second to possibly America in terms of developing software. Um, in fact, you might actually, you might argue that actually it's even more advanced. But uh, why is this? What's behind Israel's success? Okay, so, well, first of all, I would say just to your point, you know, when you define the startup or innovation and it's a question of also how you quantify it, right? Because if you would look on uh, how do you quantify it as a investment capital per head, then um, Israel is second. Uh, let's say compare, you have about, I think Singapore is number one. You have about uh, $1,200 a, a head a investment funds per person in the country. In Israel, you have around 900. Uh, the UK has, for example, 400. So uh, on that term, yes, Israel is very, very, very high. And, you know, the reason I said I'm also a little bit excited is because that question that you asked, I don't know if I can call it a loaded question, but it's a, it's a fascinating question. It's a question that I found myself thinking a lot about, even before me and you met. And that's why when I saw that you want to discuss it, I was a little bit excited because I actually put a lot of mind into that question. And so when you come to the question of why you have so much innovation in Israel, and by by the way, I, you know what, I will also frame, or I would say just before that question, there is another topic that is slightly related. It's worth mentioning in the context. I don't think at the time that we have, we'll have the ability to dig into it, but I will just throw it out there in the ether. It's a, so that is as a stat, as a, as a fact, is a, it's a debate by or a conversation by itself that it's worthwhile, that has some sort of connection to your question around innovation in Israel. But I'll go to your question around innovation in Israel, and I would say that innovation in Israel as a country will basically can be explained by referencing four areas or four topics of conversation. One is a geopolitical aspect. The other one is the IDF as an incubator, the Israel Defense Forces as an incubator. The third one is the employment and remuneration structure in Israel. And the fourth one is the cost of living. So I guess uh, what we can do is I can, if it's fine by you, we can take each one of those topics and unravel them together uh, to better understand them. Does that sound good? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I want one one thing. I one thing I'm really interested to hear your view in is that you know we're seeing huge innovation come out of like the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Saudi Arabia as well. Um, I mean, does that tie in? Also, we, we, I mean, of course, we can unpack this, but. With what you were saying in terms of like the Nobel Prize winners, there might be more in, uh, more reason as to why uh, there's so many Jewish winners, as you were saying. I'm seeing innovation from across the world right now. So, you know, so do, you, do you think that will change? Because I, th I, I don't know the stats, but I think you said that, did you say 25% of Nobel Prize winners were? Yeah. Uh, were uh, are Jewish people like in the in the areas of economics? Uh, there is uh, like a famous uh, talk about it. Uh, 
um, in YouTube. Um, if you if you're interested, we can I can share it with you. He dives deeper into the details. Yeah. Now you but you were mentioning on innovation around the world and in Saudi Arabia. I think again you have geopolitical. So some of the things that we'll talk about soon around the the concept of water and how how availability of water. Uh, leads. So I think when we will die, when I'm going to dissect a little bit the topic of uh, geopolitical factors as a as a driver for innovation, uh, we will we will be able to touch that point as well. So maybe you know what? Maybe let's talk about a little bit the geopolitical factors of Israel as a country, right? So when Israel was established, right? Obviously Israel was established in 1948, but already in 1943, you started to have the, the Arab League boycott that was existed at the time on the on the Zionist entity in a sense, and then on the Jewish people, which basically said that uh, all of any Arab country that has any commercial, like you're not allowed to have any commercial relationship with uh, uh, Israel. And not just that, any company that will deal with uh, Israel will be sanctioned by uh, the Arab League. That's why, for example, you didn't have Coca-Cola in Israel until the 880s. Japanese car were only started to be sold in Israel in the early 1990s, right? because uh, the fear of those companies from uh, suffering from uh, sanctions from um, uh, the Arab League led to them not dealing and basically isolating Israel. Now, Put aside the commercial side of that, if you think about it in the context of the ripple effect. So, for example, you had a, a later on also the French military embargo on Israel that says we're not going to sell any weapon technology to you. Now, it's important to understand, I think, because when you're asking a question like that, why do you have an innovation in a country, in the culture? It's very, very crucial to understand the social, the, the psychological social standpoint of a nation. Now, when Israel was created in 1948, it was after the Holocaust. People, the Jewish people were fleeing Europe and it, there was ba the basic perception that if you do not take care of yourself, no one else will. If you want to survive, literally, you need to be able to take care of yourself. And now, Think about that state of mind and connect that with those geopolitical things that I'm describing. And now you're not going to be surprised that at 1948, Israel established Rafael, which was basically a, a, an army innovation creation technology because you, no one is dealing with you. No one is selling to you. You need to survive. What is the Kfir? The Kfir is a copycat of the Mirage, the, Air, the French airplane. What is Galil? The Galil is a copycat of the AK-47. Right? So, Israel as a, as a country needed to basically create a technology in that in first step a, from a, a weapon standpoint just to survive. And the fact that it was under boycott just was basically a, an accelerator of that. Now you can take that to, you know, give you a saying that our first prime minister, Ben Gurion, said that a tomato that is grown in Israel, even if it costs three times more than a tomato grown elsewhere, is worth it, you should buy it. Now, when you consider Israel geography, which is predominantly desert, then, and, and you start to understand that state of mind, so suddenly you're not too surprised that a lot of irrigation and greenhouse technology actually originated in Israel. And now, if I can now reference also to your question around the uh, Saudi Arabia and innovation in that area. So a, a country cannot survive without water. Water is the basic need for a country to survive. 
Now, when, when you're looking again on Israel from a geographic standpoint, the Israel's water supply is coming from the north, from rivers that are flowing in Syria, in Lebanon, and they're filling what we like to call the Sea of Galilee, but in reality, it's a small lake. And uh, one of the reasons that I'm, I'm assuming, Lawrence, that you are aware and the listeners are aware, the Six Day War is quite a famous war. People know that event in history. One of the reasons that this war started was because the Syrian said, we are going to divert to build a dam to close the water. And basically we're going to gain two things. One thing is we're going to gain water for our farmers to, for, uh, to, uh, to basically grow, uh, grow um, you know, farms. And also we're going to dry Israel. It was a, basically a way to dry the, the Zionist entity. And that's why when Israel started the six day war, it basically uh, bombarded that uh, dam and, and that war started. Now, again, when you're thinking about that, suddenly it's not too surprising for you that desalination technology is mainly originated in Israel. Now, a lot today when people are talking about Saudi Arabia in the context of innovation, so today Saudi Arabia is the country that desalinate the most amount of water in the world, right? So they desalinate, uh, if I'm not mistaken, over a 200 um, million um, a cubic meter of uh, water, okay? But, but when you compare it uh, to, uh, when you compare it to Israel, right? So Israel, 85% of the drinking water in Israel are desalinated water. Saudi Arabia, 60%. A lot of the technology there actually is as a result of collaboration with uh, Israel. So those are, I think, the, the it's help us understand the geopolitical uh, factors that harvest or create a culture of innovation in Israel. So, so are you saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the fact that there's this reliance on desalinated water has created an opportunity for Israel to work with Saudi Arabia? Exactly, exactly. And I will tell you even more today, and this is something that people, you know, it's happening, you know, as a blind eye, like it has not been told officially, but today Israel actually allows Lebanon to divert during the summer water from those rivers that in the past they wanted to block and war, we opened the war because of that. We today allow them to basically divert those waters and irrigate their land because we are not dependent in those waters for our existence anymore. So we are saying we, it's better for them because they don't have that technology to be able to use that water and, and put water in their crafts and be able to, to eat. And then we can then also use that technology to form meaningful relationship with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, while not officially has peace with Israel, is in constant collaboration, both from a technology as well as an Intel standpoint. So I, um, I will come on back to the Intel uh, part in a bit. When you and I first um, spoke, I really wanted to do this interview. And one thing we've always, as a community, we've, we've always tried to remain non-political. But in terms of when you're speaking to companies, especially in Israel, it's impossible to not dive into the geopolitics of the innovation. Because, again, especially like the defense and intelligence sector, pretty much every government around the world that you want to is using Israeli intelligence. Oh, sorry, uh, in technology, rather, for their own intelligence services. And in terms of the desalinated water, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but 
when we talk with companies in Saudi Arabia, and I didn't know, I, I never really put two and two together, and I probably should have. They always talk about desalinated water, and I've never really like, I've never really asked them. Um, I've never really. Where is that coming from? Where is it coming from? I've kind of thought, well, yeah, you're, you know, there's a lot of desert there. It makes sense, but yeah, I've never thought actually. Who's providing the technology? Well, where's yeah, where's it coming from exactly? But um, in going back to what we're saying about Israel being a place in the world of like innovation, um, what's really like your background and um, uh, in terms of well, from both an educational perspective, but also from like a business perspective. Again, again, what was what Sorry, I your background? Apologies. What, what's your background? My background? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll get back and I will just mention that. Uh, so we'll put it as a box and then we can come back and revisit it later. Oh, so, yeah, we, yeah, but in the context of innovation in Israel, so we covered one factor, which is the geopolitical, and we have three other factors that we right now we're putting oh, aside. Let's, when we'll let, get back let's, to them. Let, let's focus on the three other factors and then we'll discuss uh, your background. But we've no got, yeah, let, let's carry on with the three other factors that you want. No worries. So the three other factors and then no problem. I promise in the end we can go and uh, talk about who I am, my background. Obviously, uh, you can hear in my accent that uh, I'm a, an Israeli, but uh, my English is relatively fluent because I also lived in Australia. I came back to Israel two years ago. So I'm a, I'm an, I, I think I'm an interesting creature and I have an interesting background. But yeah, we will get back to that later on uh, with respect to the other three factors. So the second factor is the IDF as an incubator. Now, the IDF as an incubator, I think it's important to discuss it in two paths. So one path or one discussion is the in a cultural aspect. The other one is in a professional aspect. So there is a, I guess, a cultural capacity to that and there is a professional capacity. And I think with a cultural capacity, and I think, let me tell you a story. A story is always good. And it's a story that happened to me. A personal story for me. Uh, and so, but that is, and then obviously I make references from that. People that can listen can decide if it, if it's true or not, but those, this is my interpretation, okay? So when I was in the Israeli army, I was a, a sniper in the special forces. And obviously to do that, you're going through a lot of a tedious training. And when, and remember you're a kid, Right, you go to the army when you're 18. Uh, the, and as hard as the training is, and as hard as the, when they really want to punish you, you know what is the, can you imagine what is the biggest punishment that you can give a boy that is in the army? I'm, I'm not going to guess, but I, I can imagine it's fairly people, people will usually go into the physical realm. And in reality, it's not that. It doesn't. The worst thing that you can do is tell him, you're not going home. When you're in the army, you have every like two to three weeks training and then you get like one weekend home and then you're back. And you're a boy, you missed your mom food, you miss your friends. If you have a girlfriend, lucky enough, right? So the biggest punishment that he can give you is I'm telling you, you're not going home. Everyone are going home, you're staying at the base. And at the time when I was in my training, my officer, they gave me a task. I was supposed to, I don't even remember what it was anymore. I was supposed to achieve something, to do something. And I failed to do so. And then when the time came and he told me, you're not going home and asked to speak to the officer. And I said, why? And he said, you were supposed to achieve this and this. Did you achieve it? 
And I said, no, but, and then he stopped me and he said, I don't care. You had a task, you had a goal. It's either you achieved it or you didn't. It's a yes or no question. And the reason I'm telling you that story is that the army, especially in the combat unit, the state of mind is very outcome driven. You have a goal, you have something, you have a target that you need to achieve. And it's either you achieved it or you're not and nothing else matters. And I actually, it, it applies to for me today to the way I'm looking on my professional world. When I'm working with people on a professional capacity, I split them in my head to two groups of people. You have the people that explain to you why they cannot do something because, and you have the people that solve problems. Those are the two groups of people that exist. And this is a state of mind that is coming from the army that says, I am going and I'm looking beyond to why you cannot, beyond the process, beyond everything, deliver an outcome. So that's the first thing. The second thing, uh, when we're talking about from a cultural level, uh, there is a book that you know, usually people say, you have to read it. I don't have to read it, but it's a book that I personally found interesting that deal, uh, it's called Tribal Leadership. And what this book is talking about, they're talking about how the technology and innovation, it basically brings up the, the, the growth of the tribe, or in other words, the importance of being able to collaborate in a team. And what they basically explained, they said, after the Second World War, and the, you know, the rise of capitalism and the rise of individualism, what you saw is the, the rise of you know, me, 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 the rock star, the doctor, the lawyer, right? So the, the free profession. And basically it was, you know, up until the early 90s, it's all, you can be a, a dickhead lawyer, but you will be a great lawyer. You can be a, a dickhead doctor, an unpleasant individual, and you will be a great doctor nonetheless. So it means you can be an amazing professional, very proficient and deliver outcome without being able to work as a group or be a, a nice human being, if that makes sense. I know, I know a few of those lawyers, that's for sure. And what they explain, what this book explains is now with the rise of technology, that you can be an amazing, the best developer in the world, but if you do not know how to work in a group, you will not deliver an, a value. You can be an amazing product person, an amazing data engineer, you can be an amazing, but all of those, what we are doing is greater than one person. One individual, as talented as they will be, will not be able to deliver an outcome if they are not very effective in working as a team. Now, I think, right, when we're thinking about a team, if I'm forming a group of human beings and I'm saying you guys need to work together, what are the predictors for them to be successful? You can say, I know, professional capacity, skill set. Okay, maybe, obviously, there is element of a, a, a experience, process. But I, for one, believe that the most fundamental ingredient for a successful group when they collaborate together to deliver an outcome is trust. It's the, and, and what is trust? Trust, I think, is your understanding that my counterpart, when they will be in a junction where they need to basically sacrifice their own self-interest, in favor of my interest, they will do that. They will, they will not put themselves above me. They will have my back. And the 
when you are in the army and when you're going into a combat situation, when the life of your friends are literally in your hands, it creates a new sense. I think it, in Israel, the sense of camaraderie in a group uh, is, is very much ingrained. So that is the cultural aspect of the IDF. I'm going to tell you a very quick um, yeah. story in line with that. Um, when when we started recruiting for Rayon, and I hope you don't mind me using, saying this, but I said, we're going to recruit soldiers. And it goes back to what you were saying about trust. A few years ago, we ran out of money. I mean, like we were broke. We weren't going to make it past the weekend. And I fired the team one by one. And like 10 of us, unfortunately, you're not going to get paid. I was very open with them. They all refused to leave. Refused to leave. And they said, you know what? We trust you to work it out. We trust you to work it out. And in the 11th hour, by, I mean, a miracle, someone came along. I mean, like the morning that we everything was going to shut down, we worked it out. But they trusted, we trusted each other to stick together, all of them. It wasn't, there was no bitching, there was no moaning. It was, we trust the team and the unit to work together. And I think actually that's the biggest, biggest, or sorry, the hardest piece of any puzzle when you're building a company to find that team that just trust each other when things, it's easy to trust someone when things are going well, but to trust someone when things really do go bad. Exactly, exactly. And then think about that the army, in a sense, uh, is taking a group of kids in Israel when they reach, and, and, they, and we teach them. That's what they teach you, in a sense. So when you do that in a compulsory service to all of your population, you're creating a culture where people learn the importance of trust, of camaraderie. And that is a, a core necessity if you're trying to deliver innovation. Because innovation cannot happen without forming groups of people that knows how to trust each other and work together. And then on that, add the professional capacity. The, the professional capacity is that basically you have the army, when you're looking on IDF, right? So you have the uh, 8-200 and other uh, intelligence units that basically, what do they do? They take kids at the age of 18, they put them in, a, in, a, in an incubator for, for three, four years, they bring the best tools, the best teacher, and they basically get them to create technology around surveillance, uh, around offense, right? Uh, uh, around the... Uh, um, uh, basically being able to penetrate cyber technology, right? Offensive technology. Now, then think about it. They train them for three, four years. They give them the best teacher, the best tools. And what do they do with them after three, four years? They release them to the private sector. Now, it sure need to come to no surprise to you that Israel is the biggest, the biggest country. Like when you're looking on cyber startups, cyber innovation, Israel is number one. Now, imagine yourself, Lawrence, for a second as a, as a person. I spent four years creating technology. Now I need to develop other technology to protect from the technology that I created. So if I created the offense, I was the one creating it. I'm in a much better position now to develop the technology to provide the, the defense. I, because I was the one that literally, I know the route. I created it. So that cycle of you train people, 
you do it in a condensed way, you release them to the private sector, you, the one that introduced to the market those offense cyber technology, and now you are the one that introduced to the market the, uh, the protection technology against that. So on that respect, that is a cycle. And, and again, whenever I speak with cybersecurity companies, and I'm speaking to more and more um, lately, um, there is always Israeli intelligence and technology being used, or at least more often than not. But again, there's also, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, there's also a lot of criticism from these uh, companies about about Israel. Um, and I don't, I didn't, I didn't plan on having this discussion, if I'm honest. But we so can have it, and and I welcome criticism. No, no, it's I, I genuinely, I, I'm, I don't know enough about it. What I, what I know is that I'm seeing all these countries. Right, like the like Saudi Arabia, for instance, they work with loads of Israeli companies. But I'm saying from the outside perspective, there seems to be something that the the, the rest of the world is missing. Everyone's benefiting from the technology, everyone's using your cybersecurity, everyone's using your innovation, right? There's a, a democracy in the Middle East, right? Which is mm -hmm. in itself is is a miracle, you know, especially nowadays. So what is it the rest of the world is, is missing? I've got to be careful what I say because I live in central London and I think that, you know, um, it's, there's, there's just a lot, I just want to be honest with you, there's a lot of criticism towards Israel. And I, again... Yeah, yeah, no, I think I it's a very... Think everyone's, everyone's, using, everyone's using your technology. So first of all, I'm, I'm encouraging you not to hold back and I encourage you to say everything that you want to ask and, and be as blunt as possible because I think it's the base for a more interesting conversation. Yeah, and, I don't take, and I don't take anything we're going to say to heart. I think all of the conversation we're having here sure. is a, a conversation yeah. around the interpretation and sure. factual. So feel free there's, to be blunt. There's, 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 and I'm, I'm, I really mean this. There, there is no criticism. It's mm -hmm. just, I, I just, I see what's going on in the world. And even even my team are like, oh, I don't know if you're allowed to use this. But I see what's going on in the world. The world seems very, very fragmented. And yet mm -hmm. there's this tiny, tiny country the size of Wales, like creating innovations, like we were saying, like uh, water uh, uh, desalination, right? Which has become cheaper because of Israeli technologies. I think I, I read somewhere that Israel is the only country in the world that has an oversupply of water, mm -hmm. right? And you, again, I don't, I didn't mean to mean to get into the politics of this, but you share it with your neighbors. And yet- Yeah, so how come there's so much criticism? Right, yeah. so, so that's what, respectfully, that's yeah. what, thank you. That's what I'm trying to ask, Steve. Um, yeah. Why is there so much criticism? Okay. So I think that the, there, is the, there is the immediate layer of your question, and then there is the, I guess, the more, the immediate layer, if, if you're focusing your question only on the cyber technology, because there is, there was a, a I forgot the name of that a cyber technology company that penetrated phones and people use them in Saudi Arabia, and you know, it was an Israeli company, right? Like the, the cyber the cyber industry, the cyber attack, it's a it's an espionage attack industry, and by default, it will be a shady industry. Uh, now, so there is that, but then there is the context of what you said, the criticism on Israel as a whole, and why do we see it? So I think it's important to understand that it's also when you're looking on the criticism, is the our I lived for 10 years in Australia. I felt that in Australia, 
there is no, like, Israel is being uh, viewed in a very positive light. Um, I think that uh, when you're looking on the US as a whole, uh, Israel is being viewed aside of the universities. I think in Europe, it's a different uh, topic. Now, I think when you're asking why, I think, uh, well, the world always have had uh, anti-Semitism. We can ask why the world always had anti-Semitism, right? We can ask, for example, when people are saying, oh, the Jewish people are holding all of the money in the world. People fail to mention also that uh, one of the reasons for that is that when Jewish people were living in Europe for the better course of pretty much, as we know, the Jewish civilization, there were laws prohibiting Jewish people working in government offices. So basically, the only way for you to make a living and support your kids not to starve is to basically become a self-reliant person. You cannot work as an employee somewhere because there is laws prohibiting that. So what do you do? You become a, 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 a trade person. You become a, a, a lawyer. You become basically a free profession person, which innate will basically compose more money within it. Right. So and then so when you look and then when you are taking the universities and there is a okay, whole discussion. So before, yeah. before you make the point about the universities, um, in terms of just because of how it, it comes across here, the, I, you said about the Jewish people holding all the money. It's not, most oh, I've got loads of Jewish friends. They're all broke. Right. And I, I, I think what's fair to say is that. Jewish people are disproportionately successful relative to the average person. Exactly. But that exactly. doesn't mean like like I'm you know, I'm yeah, I'm I'm not from a money background, my friends aren't from money backgrounds, you know. I, I think that it's it's important to but I will say my friends are that they're from families. I think one thing I will say is that all my friends are from very strong family units, and I definitely think that that's helped them. Definitely. So I and and yeah. so what makes Jewish people as a nation successful? It's one factor which you're starting to allude to. And then there is a the part of in many cases also that unit being successful is a contributor by itself of other units, uh, you know, not exactly liking it or having enviated it. Uh, and then when you add to that factors of uh, what happened to the universities in the better part of around the last uh, 20 years, where gradually universities became a stronghold of extremely left-wing um, ideologies that leave no room for any discourse be, uh, aside of the extreme left uh, conversation. Then, And then add to that, if specifically we're talking about Europe, uh, Europe with, I would say, funny enough, with the exception of uh, Germany that was very effective in absorbing a lot of Muslim immigration. Uh, and by the way, some of it was because they were reliant on Israel models of how you assimilate a lot of immigration. But when you're looking on what is happening right now in France and in general, uh, in Europe, uh, you uh, as a continent, you absorb a lot of immigration. Uh, Europe is not very effective in, in, in accepting those type of immigrants. When you're living, when I'm coming to Europe, when I'm walking in, I have friends living in uh, Denmark, when I'm walking in Denmark, it's very easy for me to know who is local and who is not. When I'm walking in Sydney, there is no way. Like you don't know because it's all mixed, right? So in general, I think what you're describing, the criticism on Israel is, so you asked again, a complex question, but I think it comes, if it narrow, we can narrow it down uh, to the structure like Israel as a society and like how as a as a social form we're performing and we're successful and why are we successful but that creates uh, 
antagonism and hatred. You can go back and it's rooted to, you know, many hundreds of years ago to the hatred against Jewish in, uh, in Europe. And then continue and connect it to what is happening in the universities and the narrative. And now add to that, obviously, the uh, massive ways of immigration that are not very assimilated very effectively in Europe. Add to that everything we're seeing in uh, social media and how it, it basically take any opinion and push it to the extreme. And you find yourself with people having, a, as you said, loaded opinions that are unfounded when you actually start to have a conversation like me and you're having, which you're, we're looking on the facts when we're saying, wait, because the conversation we have is, is more of a factual conversation. He's saying the facts doesn't connect when I'm seeing that from a factual standpoint, Israel is giving technology to its neighbors. It's helping its neighbors, but then no one is seeing it. And all we're seeing is criticism against Israel. Why? Yeah, so so from my perspective, like I I don't know the facts in, in terms of in, in terms of the depth of it. I couldn't sit there on a stage and have like a a detailed debate about this. It's something that I'm very interested in, but I haven't invested the time to actually learn about it. What I think is important is that ability to evaluate. And I think that across society as a whole, especially the younger generation, they've lost the ability to evaluate. To Correct. And I, and I think there was one of the topics you wanted us to talk. I, I hope we'll get a chance to discuss it later on, which is what are the challenges that uh, I see in the face of AI and the changes we're seeing? And as a father of kids, what and and I think you you just hit the nail on its head and we will maybe we'll, let's we'll circle back to it later on around the challenges in you know when me and you were kids the challenge that we had growing up is how do you get information and the way that we've been brought up is you know it's you need to go the, the newspaper and to go to the university library. and you know you're going right like how do you go to the library exactly and you find the book like it was how do I get information. So the, the whole system that we grow up was around how to train us to get information. In our days, the problem is not to get information. The information is flooding everywhere and the challenge is different is how do I validate information? And that is something that is counterintuitive to the human brain uh, uh, when it comes to validation. And I wonder because this is, if you want, we can dive into it or we can go yeah, to no, the other I, two factors. How do you want to do the conversation? No, 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 you, no, no, I'm throwing it back to you. What do you want, want to discuss? I think, I think let's finish the other uh, two topics because I think yep. it's, I think your import, your first question is important and it allows us to touch many, many aspects. And then we can circle back to the, um, uh, to the topic of, the challenges that we have um, coming forward, going forward. So we finished two factors, which was the geopolitical and the IDF as an incubator. The third one is the employment and then remuneration structure in Israel. How, how, how much time do you have? I'm I have time. I'm not limited. I'm, I'm going to move my next meeting. We're going to let's 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 carry on. Yes, no sorry, sorry, I mean to interrupt you. No, we can definitely use more time because there is a lot of interesting yeah, topics here yeah, for yeah, conversation. Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so so as you do that, what do you want? You are a man; you cannot do two things at once. Do you want to move the meeting and then we'll continue? Okay, fine. I've done it. Yeah, I've done, 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 done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I won't edit that out, by the way. I'm just gonna. No worries. Oh, yeah, I'm, you don't I'm gonna leave it. Do you know what we found that actually, when we don't, when we don't edit, the less we edit, the the better it actually like comes across. We try not to edit them. Yeah, you know, there is a line of podcasts where people just do it. Well, it's streaming, but where it's more like 
unedited. So yeah, ours are unedited. I've had we've had like dogs, cats run in, and yeah, yeah. Because yes, it's just if people are people at the end of the day. I think that um, like the shows like Joe Rogan, the reason why people like them is because they're just authentic. It's just people exactly. So anyway, sorry, as you were saying, back. To no you. worries. So let me. So with that in mind, let me tell you another true story. A fascinating story that really shaped my understanding around innovation in Israel. And it's a story that the meaning of it is both happy and sad. So um, I'm obviously, um, I'm, um, I did pretty much every, pro uh, every product position a person can imagine. I managed a lot of people. And when I came back to Israel, I functioned as a VP product in a, in a, in a company dealing with uh, online marketing. I had a product person there, extremely talented individual. And one day I was sitting and talking to him uh, a little bit about, you know, where you come from, your, your story. And he was actually, um, he went to study law and he got accepted uh, to the highest possible level of programs. It was a program where you're basically an apprentice in the Supreme Court. You, they get 14 people a year, right? Like top of the tier. And I asked him, so what the hell are you doing here? And he said, look, and after a, a year into it, I'm in the Supreme Court. I start doing my numbers. And I realized that if I'm continuing at this route, as interesting as it is, in four years from now, I will be making 14,000 shekels. I have a, a partner. We want to get married. We want to have kids, right? Like if I'm now going to go into the technology sector within one year I'm already reaching 30 so uh, it's kind of a no-brainer for me now and then it clicked for me that when I was working in Australia so for example if you take the Australian employment market or the UK one if you take a person that finished a law degree and a person that finished a computer science degree and you release them to the market their enumeration as they go is relatively comparable okay and that's why there is no incentive for people like economists, lawyers, talented people around him to go to the technology sector because, wait, I studied something. I'm renumerated for it. It's all good. In Israel, the technology sector, the renumeration structure is as such that the, it's just, it's not comparable. So you have all of that amazing. So for me, as a recruiter, as a person that is, it's great. It means that the pool of talent that I have to take to build a team is sick. So when I was trying to recruit product people in Australia, much harder because the pool of talent is much smaller where in Israel, like they are just coming from every industry. If you are a talented, smart individual, you're better off going there. You would make more money. So it basically changed. But when you think about it, the sad thing is, is that it means that Israel is kind of a one trick pony. Because yes, so when we're talking about innovation and startups, so like we said, you have like $1,000 per head investment in capital, which is only, we said, second to Singapore, which is like nearly, like it's two and a half times higher than the UK, which is insane when you think about it. But if you look on any other metric uh, and any other important metric or service, Israel is at the bottom. So our banking system um, is very, very obsolete, right? So for example, like I don't know how it was in the UK when I was living in Australia, TouchPay was in Australia when you pay with your card with the touch already in 2017. In Israel, it only started a year, a year ago. In, uh, in Australia, I transfer your money, it's immediately in Israel, banking system takes ages. So they needed to actually FinTech startups came in and took a chunk of that in Israel. But 
or take the education, Israel scoring less last in PISA test, take transportation. If you take weeks data, you would see that Israel is ranking in the top five worst in traffic congestions in the world. It takes you 2.39 minutes to cover one kilometer. The only place that is worse is Manila. So the, the overall, so the transportation, the education, the banking system, the government system, the justice system. In the UK, on average, uh, it takes a, 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 for a, a court case to settle within 170 days. In Israel, it's over a year. So the entire other systems in Israel are not really functioning. So it, because at the moment that you have one industry that sucks all of the talent and all of the people, yes, that industry is amazing. And yes, it creates a lot of innovation. And yes, it looks great, which is what you said, like, wow. But then it dries everything up. And then we are suffering in, any, in all other domain. We are underperforming significantly. And then that leads us to the last topic, which is the cost of living. And again, living in Australia really opened my eyes to that, that again, in Australia, you can have a tradie and a cashier, and they will be living together, and they're both working, and that will be enough. They will be able to put enough food on the table, a, a roof over their head, have a, a small family, everything will be okay. In Israel, they will be living below the poverty line. The yeah, cost same, of- same in the UK. Like, yeah. Everyone in the UK is broke. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say that. It feels like everyone in the UK is broke, doesn't have cash, doesn't have access to cash. Well, we get, I'm looking on I'm looking on numbers, right? So from a number standpoint, 20% of the population in Israel is below the poverty line, right? So if the poverty line, it has a very clear statistical definition. And then when you're looking on the OECD average, the OECD average stands on 12%, right? So the only place in the OECD, the only country in the OECD that has a higher a, a poverty a, a ratio is Costa Rica. One would also ask why is Costa Rica part of the OECD, but Maybe they're there, so Israel would not be last. Uh, but uh, in that context, the UK, while maybe it feels as it broke, I'm not sure what is the, but I would assume that the UK uh, will, the poverty line, like you will have probably around 10% of the population in the UK will be below the poverty line or something like that. Sorry, in terms of like, I don't think there's that many people living in poverty in the UK. I, I think the reality is, is that if we nail it down, um, when you go to Africa, when you travel around like parts of the world, you know, there, that's where there's like real, I mean, even now it's changed. 10 years ago, let's say 10 years ago, when I was last in Africa, you see real poverty. You don't see that in the same way in the UK. It's not comparable. Um, yeah. But what I mean is, is that people just don't have access to capital. They don't have savings. They don't have money. And they're just really fucked off. Like that, that's it. Excuse my language. But that's, you know, that's the best way to depict it. It's just people are frustrated, um, which is crazy because at the same time, like when you talk about like touch, you know, like tapping your card and paying and like, when it comes to like banking technologies, like, we've got everything. Like we're pretty much at the forefront um, of, of the world with those sorts of things. And that's why, you know, London is very much a tale of two cities. Uh, mm -hmm. London can be your heaven or it can be your hell. But uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's true. So and then exactly and the and then at least the one thing that you have in London, which is the, the cost of living still, right? So when when you will go and buy in a supermarket in London, maybe the rent in London, the rent in London will be high. Yes, it will be similar to Tel Aviv. But if you want to go and buy groceries 
if you want to go and buy a car, right? Like in Israel, you have a hundred percent tax on car. You have a hundred percent tax on petrol. Everything is ex- the the basic products that you will buy will be sig. So when I'm comparing, let's say, a, a Tel Aviv to Sydney, um, a Tel Aviv will be around a twenty percent more expensive than Sydney, and the salaries are comparable, right? So. The Tel Aviv ranked the number one most expensive city in the world last year. Tel Aviv, so the cost of living in Israel is... Ex- now, again, it's a conversation by itself why Israel is so expensive. But but in the context of yes. our conversation, right, Israel is very expensive. And when you combine that with all of the other information that we covered in our conversation, you understand that literally if you do not innovate, if you are not going to push, then you are putting yourself at risk of falling, like not being able to actually live your life. So when I was in Australia living, people there are comfortable. So there is the stress to innovate is not really there because you're going to be okay. You cannot live in that with that sentiment in Israel because things are not necessarily going to be okay if you're not going to get your shit together and push hard. It's a cultural uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms with the younger generation, look, and again, we're seeing like loads, West, it's the Western media, I don't dive into it too much, but I do see, I'm seeing like loads of protests at the moment in Israel. Yes. Uh, w- w- what's that about? Interesting. Another interesting thing. I just feel it ties into all this, and before you... It does, it does. But can it I say does. one thing before you, before we jump yeah, in? Yeah, 100%. Like, so like the thing about London, I will say, and like, you know, I feel that the leadership, unfortunately, is lacking in the United Kingdom. But in terms of opportunity, even during the pandemic, you know, things were obviously very, very expensive. Um, we weren't getting sales as a company. I phoned up Amazon. I was like, hey, I need a job. I need to make some extra money on the side. They were like, yep, yeah, start tomorrow. I mean, within an hour. And they were like, the pay's £11 an hour. You work the night shifts, you know, and we'll pay you on a Friday. All of a sudden, I straight away, I was like, right, great. I've got an extra four, five hundred pounds a week coming in to pay the company costs. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think that that is very, I mean, can you do that in Israel? Could you just get so again, again, explain to me, explain to me so, again. Can so, you come back? So, OK, we're running Rayon during the pandemic. We don't have money to pay for the emails. I said to the team, guys, I'm going to go and work at the Amazon factory to get us money to keep the servers going. And um I phoned up Amazon or I went online, um, applied, like filled out some information. They phoned me within 20 minutes and I spoke to a recruiter, a person, they asked me some questions. I filled out, they sent me some more information to fill out, filled it out. The next morning I was starting on a job. It's a horrible job, right? But it's still opportunity. And I think it was like 11, 11 pounds or 13 pounds an hour for the night shift. And you work like 11 p.m. to 10 a.m. or you do like 5 a.m. to like midday like it's then it's really unsociable oh, sorry sorry 4 a.m to midday it's really unsociable hours but within minutes of realizing i was broke i could just like get a job you know and the job was actually quite a well-paid job it's not nice work but it's it's it, there's, there's there's that opportunity there do you have that in israel no, we have that in, if you, you want do. to okay. in israel you will be able to work I that that won't be the problem the problem that you will have is that doing work like you described in Israel, the amount of money it will generate for you 
will not really allow you. So take the problem that you had. You needed to go and do that in order to get the money to pay for the emails to keep the things running. Yeah. In Israel, probably the money that you will get out of it will not be enough to basically cover the problem. We left the conversation in what is happening in Israel now with all of the demonstration. I guess we can come back to that in a second. And then while I was, me and you were talking as we just needed to do that short break around uh, the, uh, the ability of Europe, what is happening with Europe with respect to the immigration coming into Europe. And I was about to tell you about a very interesting podcast that I was listening to in Israel that we're talking about, analyzing about the, the riots that are currently happening in France. And, and basically what they're describing is that in a sense, the, the big immigration, the big waves of um, um, Muslim immigration that arrived to Europe arrived in many, many places. And in most, we, with the exception of Germany, when you're looking on England, when you're looking on France, when you're looking on Belgium, when you, though it's not really working out. What does it mean not working out? The percent of those of that population being absorbed into the workforce, they ex expect to which they are actually uh, participating in the in the school system, they extend their representation when it comes to violent crimes and so on and so on. And in, so those numbers are very strong indicator that it didn't work very well for Europe as a whole, with the exception of Germany. Now, what is going well relatively in Germany is that Germany actually followed some of the, because when you're thinking about Israel, Israel is also a country of immigrants. People came here from North Africa, people came here from Western Europe, people came here from Eastern Europe, right? So Israel is a, it is a collection of people from extremely, take a Jewish Moroccan person, you know, going back to the 50s, and take a, a, a Jewish Ashkenazi people, they are, they will be culturally different, uh, like let's say uh, you, and an, and an immigrant from Algier. Uh, and so how did Israel was able to make it work? And one of the models that Germany applied that Europe, the rest of the countries in Europe didn't, that really helped them out is in, in Israel, we called it the Ulpan, over there obviously they had a very complicated German name for it. But what it basically means is that when you're coming as an immigrant to Germany, you are first of all obligated to study the language. So, and they help you, they give you lessons, but you cannot get your citizenship, you cannot get your refugee status if you didn't pass and learn the language, pass test that shows that you can speak the language and pass citizenship test shows that you understand the principles on which the country that you want to live in is carry itself on. And by doing that, we then uh, it was able to create some sort of a better baseline of what are what is the ground of operation? Germany was much more effective in doing so, and therefore uh, it's able it's able to handle and absorb the waves of Muslim immigration more effective than other countries uh, in Europe. And now it is a yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge uh, when it comes to employment, when it comes to education, when it comes it comes to cultural values that Europe will need to decipher. And do I mean in Israel? Do you have you obviously have it's a Jewish country. Do you have a lot of like Muslims like living and working together with Jewish people? So you will, uh, you will, you will have, um, you will have Muslim people that are uh, working. And also, again, look, my wife is a Australian Vietnamese. She's a Buddhist, right? So 
the, the society today in Israel is getting more diverse. Don't get me wrong. Israel is still not going to be as, uh, you know, as liberal or as, as equal as uh, Australia. Uh, but it's a, it's all, overall, considering the circumstances and the age of the country, it's doing well. Uh, yeah, so that's about that. Then you want us to go back to the demonstrations? Uh, or do you want to talk about I, the no, technology listen, and I, the youth? I know. I, I'm, well, actually, I, I know. Yeah. Who am I? We didn't talk about who am I. I know there's yeah, so many no, topics. You know, I, 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 let, let, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about you, but let's also talk about like the, the technology and the youth. Because I, I think I think that's that's more prevalent, I think. And again, and I, let's start with your background. I mean, um, when did you start in the world of technology? Cool. So maybe yeah, I will give you maybe my quick uh, my quick bio. Yes. So first of all, my quick bio is that um, yeah. So well, we already know my name, Liron, and I'm married uh, to Christine, which is an Australian Vietnamese and the most amazing woman in the world. And I'm a father of Evan, who is 10, and Noah, and who is a six. And she's a she's the devil. She's a very cute devil, but a devil. Uh, and uh, be, before that, right, so I've been living in the last two years in, uh, in Israel, and I'm working as a product director in Eversea. And Eversea, basically, to put a long story short, and after that, again, as time permits and as you would want, we can dive deeper into it. But what Eversea does, it develops AI-based uh, technology that basically makes the internet a better and a cleaner place. Um, and so it's a it's a B2B SaaS product. Uh, but before that, so I've only been in Israel for two years. Before that, I was living uh, for nearly 10 years in, uh, in Australia. And my background, where I actually started, I started as a UXer. I'm coming, I have a degree in psychology, and then I did uh, my, uh, my second degree and my, uh, uh, and my PhD, I did in human factors engineering, and a lot in the areas of, uh, of usability and, and, and user experience. And in Australia, I worked a lot with e-commerce, and I started as a UXer, and then I moved, and I did a lot of it. I worked a lot with data, build data system, understanding how do you represent a user engagement with unstructured data, building it. So all of the world of data and predictive analytics. And then from there, I got into the area of product. So basically, I've done any, any position from a, a UX manager, head of product, product director, CTO, managed teams of 90, managed teams of 10, uh, I worked a lot in Australian e-commerce and marketplace and basically B2C. So every buzzword, B2C, B2B, SaaS, e-commerce, that I've done it all. You can throw it on me and I will, and I can hold it. And uh, probably, so you can say I'm a jack of all trade. Uh, some would say master of none. I would like to think master of all. Um, but that's, I guess, master me master on a Jan, my business partner, who says, experts don't exist because one of the first things <laughs> to remember that experts don't exist yes so definitely we're all learning we're all but i mean so i mean in terms of so you said you studied psychology yes so i mean where's where's the jump come from or was it something where there was always a passion for computer science but also just very interested in the human condition so for me um after i finished my army service um i and quite common in Israel, but I decided I went to go and travel the world a bit to decide what it is that I want. I needed to, a bit of a, I had, of, I had an intense 
army service. I needed How long were you serving for? Three years. Yeah. I was in Lebanon. I was in Gaza. I was in unpleasant situations. And I said, I, I want to clean it. And I went travel. I actually went travel. I went backpacking in Australia and in New Zealand. And uh, during my travel, I realized that the things that interest me the most is people. So I decided that when I'm going back to Israel, I will go and study psychology. And then I started psychology. And as I studied psychology, I realized that the domain that I find most interesting in psychology, there is many, by the way, psychology, many, many fascinating areas with that. If it's organizational psychology, development psychology, the uh, group psychology. But for me, the thing that appealed the most was cognitive psychology and statistics. Cognitive psychology deals more with how your brain process information. By the way, a lot of the development of computing is a, is a byproduct of understanding of how our brain works, short-term memory, long-term memory, sensoric memory, like RAM, and so all of those things are related, like they are structured in a way, in a similar way. But at a certain point when I was doing, I went into the cognitive lab and everything. at a certain point I said, wait, I'm reading articles that are 40 pages long that I can summarize in one paragraph. There's a lot of bullshit in psychology. And, and at a certain point I said, wait, if I'm reading 40 pages that I could have just summarized in one paragraph, I need something more practical. So then I started to search more and, and I discovered the field of human factors engineering. Now, human factors engineering is basically practical cognitive psychology because what human factors engineering says, it says, look, you have a human beings in the world and we have machines in the world. Uh, and it's much, and now the whole concept of in, intuitive usage, right? So, but it's, it also goes into ergonomics and, uh, and the world around us. But basically what it says, it says, it's easier to change a machine than to change a human being. So what the basic premise of human factors engineering is saying, it says, we are going to study how the human works, how we process information, our body dimension, how we basically operate in the world. And then we are also going to study machines. We're going to study programming. We're going to study how you build those things. And then once you understand both domains, you are more equipped in saying, how should the machine be repurposed and rebuilt so it will fit the human needs. That is the basic concept of uh, human factors engineering and user experience is a subset of human factors engineering. Another, another domain that like, for example, ergonomics. Ergonomics is basically the, the domain that can say, how do I design the world? You know, when you're sitting in a car, the dashboard, the buttons, what is touch, the, the rich distances. It's another domain that is part of uh, human factors engineering. So that's how I reached to it and then from there, when I got to the point where I'm about to finish, I did my, my, my thesis was already with Deutsche Telekom and it was dealing around, at that time we're talking uh, at uh, 2005 when um, you know the iPad started to come out more and more and suddenly the need, the understanding that we don't have small screen mobile and big screen desktop, that the screen size changes. So my thesis dealt with what we call today responsive design. So how do you basically design content on a screen in a way that it can fluctuate based on the dimension of the screen and still be readable? And then in 2009, when I did my PhD, it was around a, the usability of mobile devices. So at that time in 2009, mobile phone was really hitting it. 
but people were still not in a state of mind that they understand that they're holding a computer in their hand. And when you were, and so they wouldn't protect them and then you would lose your phone and everything is exposed. So what Deutsche Telekom wanted to do is how can we basically improve the usability of the, of the, of the protective system in a phone so people will be more inclined to use them. So a lot of the things that you know today around biometric authentication, screen signature and stuff like that, those are things that my, uh, uh, my dissertation dealt with, which was around how do we improve the usability of security system of mobile devices. So gradually you can imagine how from that field when I went into the private sector, I was drawn to the domain of user experience and how do I basically improve the designs. And when I moved to Australia, so then, the part that I'm missing in between is that in between my second degree to my third degree, I went traveling the world. I met who is going to be my wife. We came to Israel, started to live together while I did my PhD, started to work in some startups. And then we uh, we got uh, to a pregnancy that was uh, a little bit unplanned. Well, you know, today I'm a more mature person. I should say you should have known. But at the time when I was younger, I thought like, oh my God, how like, only once, you know, and then we're like, but then, um, uh, but and then we realized that we had like keeping an asterisk. That in, by the way, what's that? I oh, said so we're keeping that in. Keep it in. Uh, yeah. Okay. No, no pun. No, no pun intended. By the way. But, uh, <laughs> um. Uh, so, but then, but then we realized that in our health, like my the private insurance that we got for my wife when we we're living in Israel, it had a small asterisk that says that this health insurance applied as long as you're not pregnant. So which, right, it makes sense from a statistical standpoint, right? Because when an insurance company insures you, they insure you under the assumption you're not going to use it, right? It's a game of odds because at the moment you use your insurance, it's not worth it for them anymore. Whenever they insure you, they, they how much you're paying is a function of, now, if there is one thing you know for sure is that if someone is pregnant, they're going to use their insurance. And that's why they had that asterisk. But then we realized that giving birth in Israel without an insurance will cost us a lot of money. So pretty quickly, we just said, okay, anyway, we wanted to move to Australia. We packed our bag very quickly, moved wow. to Australia, started our family there. It was crazy, like in a spam of like four months, quit our jobs, packed everything, moved to Australia, started again. And then over there, I got into the e-commerce sphere, which was fascinating. And I started there my first step as a as a UX as a UX expert. Amazing! Wow. And why did you come back to Israel? Well, it was a few things. It was a combination of factors. The first thing was that it was COVID, and during COVID, like when we were living in Australia for nearly ten years, every year. I used to come, we used to come to Israel to visit my family and friends, and my parents used to come every year to visit us, so we had some sort of a, we kept seeing each other, right? Yeah. And and suddenly COVID comes, and like for two years, borders are shut, we cannot see our family, so that was one factor. The second factor was that then, at the time, I was in, at a position as a as a CTO in, a, in Catch, which is a, an e-commerce company that competes with Amazon in Australia, it was actually established by two Israeli brothers from uh, Tveria, and uh, we sold it to one of Australia's biggest conglomerates. And after we sold it, uh, gradually it became more of a, an, an Australian bureaucratic, uh, rather than a fun, quick e-commerce startup. So it was kind of, okay, what's next? And usually for jobs like I do, 
there is no point going in for anything less than two, three years. You cannot deliver an impact. So it was really a point when I'm saying, okay, from start, what it is that I do next? Because the next thing I'm going to do, it's going to for at least two to three years. And then add to that the fact that uh, we were, uh, because we lived for six years in Sydney and another three years in Melbourne. So we're living in Melbourne at the time. And Melbourne has horrible weather. It's very similar to London. Horrible, horrible weather. If you are a person that likes sunlight and happiness, not for you. Uh, yeah, right? so, yeah, and yeah. at a certain point, me and my wife are looking at each other and we're saying, wait, for three years, we didn't have summer. And Sydney has amazing summers, right? Tel Aviv, amazing summer. Like we didn't have summer, so we wanted summer. So the, And then also there was the fact that, you know, we have kids and my parents, you know, they are now foot, 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 cognitively and physically, they're still there. And I wanted my parents to have memories for my kids and my kids have memories for my parents before it's too late. I'm, you know, again, I'm a numbers person. They are 70 something. I keep seeing my friends in Australia going back to Israel to the funeral of their parents and stuff. I didn't want that to be the way. I wanted to get a chance to spend some quality time before it's the end. So connecting all of that, we said, let's create another experience. Let's move to Israel. It was, it's definitely, and we did the move, hard move, but we've done it. And two years ago, we did the switch. And ever since we're here. In the in the center of uh, AI innovation at the moment, or at least one of the centers of AI innovation. Um, I mean, and, and coming on to that, we haven't had a chance to discuss this, and I hope we can now. Is yeah, how 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 is AI going to shape the future um, of our world? Okay, so you touched it, and I think it's a it's a very both important and a fascinating topic. Now, look, the, let's state the obvious very quickly. Okay. So there is the obvious thing that we know that certain positions are going to uh, disappear and other like for example you're going to have like a generative AI integration expert that will be the one to come to the organization understand how the organization work and then understand how they can leverage various AI tools to increase their efficiency and so on so obviously and and certain design jobs you know will now become less you know if now you need to do a very poc or brainstorming you don't need to go to designer anymore you can use like mid journeys and solutions so oh, there is the obvious stuff that certain position right will go down other position and obviously other position like for example from as a product person suddenly i need to write a very quick uh, vba code to enable a certain prioritization uh, methodology i'm trying to create so if I'm effective in leveraging tools like that, I can be quicker at my job. So it will be part that it, it will allow you, it can be a tool that empowers. So all of those things, I'm running through them quickly because I'm assuming this is the obvious. I, of course, if you feel it's suitable, we can take them and dive deeper. But I actually, from my standpoint, where I'm thinking more is in the context of what you said around, how do you validate? Because I see a few things. Again, when me and you grew up, uh, we had the concept of media, and there was the object, there was the concept of objective reality, where you had people, you had news agencies uh, uh, that their job is to report the factual reality we are operating in, and there was researchers that their job was to reach research the domain of the world around us, write about it, and our job in order to become an effective human being in the world is to basically grab to that information, consume it, and from that, take decision and manage our life. And today, the problem that you're facing is that the amount, so it's no longer a challenge of 
finding information, it's a challenge of vetting it because the information is coming at you at spades. Now, I always say to people, and, and I was a, a bit of a, a sin to that in our conversation, right? Because, okay, you can take any topic that you want, even the topic of Israel as innovative and decide if you want to go now on a quest to find data and to find information that actually validates the argument that uh, Israel is not innovative, you will be able to do so. So in the world that we're living in, where the amount of information constantly being generated is immense, and also the validity of that information is questionable, if you want to find information to back a certain point of view that you have, you have no problem in doing so. And therefore, it means that finding information that validates what you think is not very interesting. What is much more interesting is to try and disprove your, your path of thought. It's trying to actually prove yourself wrong because if you are not able to prove yourself wrong, this is a much more valid indication to being able to find information to back what you think. But the problem with human beings is that from a psychological standpoint, no one wants to be wrong. That's not a nice feeling. That's not how we operate. We don't wake up in the morning and we say we believe in something or we want something. And now my mode of action is supposed to be to prove myself wrong. And now take that and add to that the fact that, and you were talking before that in Israel and what's going on in Israel. But the scary thing today is that you have parallel realities. So if you now want to live in a reality, that the, the election in United States were uh, fake, were stolen, okay? Uh, if, you're, if you're a person that is holding that view, you are now able to go to news outlets, to, uh, uh, to social networks, to groups that constantly pump that narrative. Like you can live in that world where all of the information that you are consuming is validating that the election was stolen. It no, you will not be introduced with information that uh, basically try to disprove that, and and that is true for pretty much everything in the world. And all what is the reason I'm stating that in the context of AI, because I think what generative AI doing that is scary. It basically makes the ability, like the amount of information generated, is increasing significantly. And I always say that you know when you when you're playing with a chat GPT, they remind me a lot of talking to an Israeli. Because the thing with Israelis is that they always speak with a lot of confidence, even when it's not founded. Right? So you can ask ChatGPT stuff and you can see that he will reply with so much confidence and it's bullshit. It's wrong, but it's written so adequately. It's so well phrased. It's so confident. You're like, surely that is true. So when you're now creating AI systems that are able to bullshit around with confidence, and able to generate information that backs people premeditated positions, you are now in a very risky world of creating parallel universes. So th of that, yeah, and so that's that's the thing, or the, I would say one of the main concerns about generative AI is that it's not just shaping the data, right? It's not giving misinformation, it's affecting human emotions. And like you were saying, you can pump out anything whether you believe the, the election was stolen or not, the information you're reading is designed to shape 
how you feel towards that situation. And I think that's my biggest fear with AI. All of a sudden, you're controlling human emotion. Exactly. And now we go, if we're connected to the challenges that then we have, and we're connected to the education system, I think, okay, I'm a father. As I said, I believe that aside of obviously creating good kids with good moral values that will strive to be positive people in the world, think that one of the tasks that I have is to teach them how you validate information. When you're encountering information, how do you now cross-reference it? How do you now actually check it against multiple sources? How do you now ask the, the question that are trying to disprove it? And that is a task that is a skill that it's that it's very important for any one of us that is a parent to see how do we instill in our kids. But as a society, in the context of what we just said on AI, I think the the place where the education system where because the universities has no the value that the universities are bringing in the context of giving you information is diminishing. So the value that I think the universities should have is around how do we actually encourage debate? Me and you were talking before offline about the ability to have top, that certain topics that you want to discuss, you're too scared to open them for discussion due to physical repercussions. Me, right? So we were talking like, but the challenge that we have, and, and again, it comes to when you have a lot of those parallel universes that pump and create that polar, polarization in society, it brings people to that state. So our challenge is, how do we actually combat that and create an environment that, yes, everything should be discussed with respect. We shouldn't, but we should, everything is open for discussion. And how, when everything is open to discussion, how do we validate? How, when someone tells you something, you take it and you don't take it on its, but, right, but you get me? So, so, which is interesting. And look, yes, we've lost the ability to decipher, or at least you were saying with your kids, you have to be able to teach them how to decipher good information from bad information, but as AI advances, as generative AI advances, how will humans actually be able to decipher what is good from bad? And in terms of what you said, I mean, I guess I, I can't ignore it because it, it's important. You're right. There's certain things on the podcast. If you go back and you watch the old podcasts, I speak my mind like freely. That's the way it should be. On the Rayon platform, we have a page that is dedicated to freedom of speech. It says, look, here are our views on freedom of speech. That's it, right? Um, but we now live in a world where you do get punished if you speak too freely on things. And that is surely part of the problem. There are certain things that you can't say. There are people on here. Uh, one thing that I've said, on, it's out there now anyway, so I, I can't go back on it. One thing that I've, I've said on previous podcasts is, Three, four years ago, I would ask people in interviews, I would just say to them, how many sexes are there? Just because I wanted to see, and I, I, I didn't react to, the, to their um, answer. I just wanted to hear what their answer was, right? Now, if you have that discussion, there are economic repercussions for your company, which is economic repercussions for your staff and economic repercussions for their families, you know? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I but if it was just me, I speak, in, you can see the podcast, I speak incredibly freely. But it's, I know. It, it, but again, we, and this comes back to the question about generative AI, 
in the future, how are we going to know what's true and what's not if we're not even allowed to discuss it? That's the part that is scary, right? Yeah. Because uh, so I wouldn't be afraid of generative AI if not what you just mentioned. What you just mentioned scares me more than generative AI because what you just mentioned said, if I want to state a factual fact or if I want to open a controversial topic for a conversation or for a debate, I'm no longer able to do so. And I think the basic foundation, the basic premise upon our amazing civilization have been created. And I think the basic premise upon we shouldn't be scared of generative AI, we should be you know, hopeful for the future is that we're able to do exactly that. We're able to, because great things, right? So take, for example, the um, Mark Twain after that was when, you know, the Philippines, you know, like the Philippines had a horrible history, right? Where they were basically, uh, uh, they were genocide by the, uh, by uh, King Felipe, right? That's what they call the Philippines. So by the, um, uh, uh, by the Spains. Then after that, uh, Spain's hand them over to the Americans and, uh, and they butchered them. And then after that, in the Second World War, Americans threw them away to the uh, uh, to the Japanese. Well, the Japanese when they came in, the Japanese butchered. Horrible stories. The Philippines, very sad history. Now, when Mark Twain started to write and he said, we just abolished slavery in the United States. And he opened an example, like, how is it possible to say everyone are equal here, but it's okay to have slavery in the Philippines, right? And it was controversial and it wasn't an easy conversation to open. But he, he was able to do that. And that conversation led to the United States stating what we're doing in the Philippines is wrong. By the way, the reason that notice the Philippines, King Felipe, but they all speak English is because they said what we did there was wrong. Now we're actually going to build schools. We're going to teach them the language. We're going to help them set democracy. Never mind that they fell in the end because the Second World War started and the Japs came in and, and basically did a third genocide there. But the ability to open controversial topics for debate, the ability to speak and, and state your mind in a dignified way towards another human being is the basic foundation upon which our society can, can grow and become better. And not being able to do so is very scary. And then when not being able to do so, when you have generative AI that generate volume of data, sometimes invalid and incorrect, but in an extremely convincing way to affect your existing emotional state, validate that, and even per further push it to the polars is scary. How do we combat it? We're combating it by not being afraid to raise up and speak about things that are unrightful. And by the way, I, for one, do it. For example, you talked about the gender. So I am opening also at work, also, and I'm saying, look, I'm interested because I'm really interested in talking to people about the concept of transgender men participating in women's sport. And then a lot of people would scan. I can understand why people will say, yes, we, we should allow them and that's fine. But then when you're looking on cases where, uh, first of all, we cannot ignore the fact that biological men. But, yep. but do you not think when someone says, yes, we should allow them, you obviously not, I mean, I can't speak for yourself. If somebody said to me, it's fine to allow um, a transgender man to fight in the UFC. Have you seen the fights, right? The women get battered 
exactly but that how can that be okay it's it's impossible for that to be okay correct exactly so by the way like you had a woman now in the ufc that a a a biological male that identifies a female fracture her skull yes you have a right you have a we have a a a swimmer that saying what about my right for privacy i'm in my own private locker room and i see a biological male walking in front of me with his penis exposed that is not making me feel comfortable right so but the those same people are being attacked in san francisco when they're going to talk about it uh, by those when you said look i will get economical sanction by those extreme left-wing parties no and i think sorry to interrupt you i think um you're jewish and as a jewish person I'm an atheist, first and foremost. Uh, apologies, yes. fine, you're fine. No, no, wait, wait. Okay. You're no apologies. Okay. By definition, you're right, because I was okay. born to a Jewish mother. So by definition, whether I like it or not, I'm Jewish. And I do live, you know, like I do Kiddush every every Friday. And I, you know, celebrate the holidays because I, I value the tradition. But <laughs> from a belief standpoint, I do not believe in God. And, and, and I would consider myself an atheist. But no need to apologize. All good. Okay, but I mean, I mean, in in terms in terms of in terms of uh, the the Jewish. Well, I can't talk for the Jewish people, but it's very much a case of after what happened with the concentration camps, after what happened in the Second World War, is very much a never again, right? A never again uh, philosophy or approach. And what that means is that actually, if you see something that is suppressing freedom of speech, you can't just ignore it. And it's something that has to be, like you said, with respect, we've got something which I, I wrote it myself, like on um, on Rayon, I was just pulling it up while, while, you was, while you were talking. You know, we have a freedom policy and it starts with, we believe in freedom of speech, freedom of religion and freedom of the press, including for our members of society to individually or collectively communicate their opinion regarding any actions taken by Ren that they may disagree with. That's how it starts. And we're saying Mm -hmm. to people on our platform, if we're doing something wrong, you can tell us, right? And in the same way that with the child, if you saw a child that was about to run in front of a car, you'd grab them and stop them, right? And I I feel that actually with, with generative AI, there's not going to be any grabbing. There's not going to be any stopping. It's going to just be a case that people are going to run in front of cars and they're going to just hurt themselves. But, you know, and if you comment on it, then you're the bad guy. Yeah. And that's basically what happened. I forgot the name of the original name. There was that lady. I forgot her name, but it, it's you very... The swimmer. The swimmer, yeah. Leah and Thomas. Ba- Leah Thomas is the male one. And then... Yeah, her- yeah, yeah. Yeah, the lady, the blonde lady that is now speaking. I know who you mean. About. Yeah. Like, so I, I see that equate to what yeah. you just said. So she's the one that is trying yeah. to hold the child that is running into the traffic. Post. She's the one that is seeing what is happening to the female swimmer sports. Well, she's the one that is seeing what is happening to females that have been fighting all of their life in order to basically get like a, a representation in a, in women's swimming. And she's been seeing it taken away. She's seeing them being creating sexual discomfort for them, exposing them in the in their showers, in the most private places to a situation that it's completely failed to say is an uncomfortable form. She's seeing women's rights being violated and she was afraid to talk because she, she was letting, like you said, the kid run into the road and get hit. And now when she's speaking up, 
you can see the amount of bashing. She was literally was held ransom physically when she was talking in, um, in San Francisco University, right? So this is exactly uh, equates to your point around at the moment that you are trying to speak up uh, and, and voice also, by the way, in my mind, on the right thing. If someone else thinks it's not the right thing, they're more than welcome to argue their point. But at the moment that you do so, you suffer consequences immediately. So, so what 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 do you do? I mean, in terms of in terms of the way in which we actually develop develop so, technology, how do we? So, yeah. So it's funny because I I look on situations like that, and I'm starting from home. When I'm seeing that. I say that actually my first starting point is not what technology should um, we develop in order to address it, but how do I, because everything that me and you spoke about, we basically spoke about how the cultural norms that we operate under are putting our life our way of life or the, the way that we want to see life in the future at risk. And my way to combat that is in my small world, make sure that I am pushing towards the direction that I believe are important. So in my context is, yes, I will be at work and I will open with people in a dignified way, controversial topics for a conversation. And I will do so in a way where I'm not going to obviously force it upon them, but I would say, look, this is a topic, you know, I've been working, like I value your intellectual capacity. We've been working for a while. There is this, there is this topic that it's a contingent, contingent topic. Are you comfortable talking about it? Say, no, no problem. No, they said, yes, let's have a conversation, but I would not be, you know, afraid of, and then I will go in with my kids, you know, my son, I actually come here like the, I just finished a, a, a circumcision ceremony of a, my brother, he had a, a boy and they just uh, circumcised him. And my son came to me and he said, dad, because my son is 10 years old, you know, what, what is circumcision? And I needed to explain to him, I, I told him, you know, like basically you have boys and when boys are born, they have extra a skin. On their, uh, on their penis and some of them like they uh, you cut some boys they cut them off some they leave it on and he said and he obviously got very alarmed he's like wait no one is going to cut my penis I'm not going to let it happen and I told him don't worry it's already been done for you <laughs> and then I told him look basically you have Muslims and Jewish people they circumcise Christians and, and other um, um, religion don't and then he asked me, wait, because my wife is Buddhist, so what am I? Does it mean that I'm Jewish? You know, it means you can be whoever you want to be. Uh, you want to be Jewish, you can live the life of Jewish. I, for one, do not believe in God, but that's my belief. You are entitled to have your own belief and live your life the way you want to live them. Right? So at the end of the day, what we can do is we can take those interactions, be them in a professional capacity and be them at the capacity of us as parents and create meaningful conversation. Don't suppress the truth. Allow people to have those debates and allow people to understand when we encounter that and when we see people present to us fake news or fake information that, look, this is how you validate. This is the cross-reference that they did that shows that what you just said is unfounded. 
look, there is this outlet that you can go and expose yourself to. Have you considered that viewpoint? You uh, use Twitter. Yes, I do. So you know, like, so this, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know um, enough to really comment. But my, sorry, my understanding is Elon Musk has introduced a feature fairly recently called Communities, where it's two people that would typically have opposing views, but agree on some contentious issue. Uh, are able to like promote, you know, their research, their findings. So say, for example, you said something that you weren't able to like validate it or say whether or not it was true. You then have other experts that come in and they can actually uh, comment on it. And if you have two people that would typically have opposing views, agree on something, then it, there's a higher probability that actually what they're saying is the truth. That is super interesting. It and I think that, right? right? Yeah. And, and I think it relates to your point before when you said, if anything, it's it's a good example of what can you do to use technology to combat that. Because basically, what if technology from an algorithmic standpoint is built today in a way that it echoes your existing point of view and polarize them because by doing that, you get more clicks. That type of, uh, uh, I guess, algorithmic approach that come and say, I'm going to try and find people that have some grounds of commonalities, but also some points of disagreement. And I will encourage that type of an encounter. That is a, a that is an interesting way of connect because if we just say, if we'll take the point I was making before that we are gradually getting to a world that people can live in parallel universe and they can literally exist in groups that only echoes their point of view and they would never get exposed to other. Those type of solution will get those groups connected. So, but to be, to be honest, yeah, what's that? I'm saying it's clever. It's clever, it is. And in general, look, I'm I'm an optimistic by nature. Look, to my, uh, about what was it, 100, 150 years ago, people said that there would never be enough food to feed everyone as we'll grow. But they didn't predict the greenhouse technology to come in, right? So, and, and that changed the game. So the human race have a tendency to figure things out, yeah. right? And so... I'm I'm not of the opinion that we have an, an apocalyptic um, you know future ahead of us. I think that the the future overall is going to be good. And... You have to be optimistic. You yeah. do. You have to be, and there is there's tons of innovation going out there, which is why. And look, you saw at the start of the podcast, right? The first thing I wanted to do was talking about actually um, Israel working with countries that they wouldn't otherwise normally have worked with and how technology has been able to create unified solutions, you know? Um, but I think the second you stop people from being, from being able to talk freely, that's where the that's where the problem comes in. And like you were saying, sorry, what you're saying really echoes what we've got on in terms of our freedom policy. I'm just looking at it now. It says, we encourage you to be willing to challenge others' views respectfully, be willing to have others challenge your views, be open to offending and receiving offense from others, but we ask that you apply professional maturity as you would in any professional environment and apply common sense and diplomacy when choosing your words. Why is it so hard? And and it's that it's that sentiment, you know, when I, when was the when there was all of that debate in Israel around the around the changes in the judicial system, and and I wasn't in favor of the. Uh, while I'm, I see a lot of, I recognize a lot of the problem in judicial system, and I do agree that the the overall issues and flags that they raised against them are valid, and changes needs to be made. 
I wasn't in favor in the context of how they were going about it and the and the type of the laws that they were trying to promote and the way. But when I saw the people that I disagree with, you know, and they were going and talking, and then the people that agrees with me and disagree, I disagree with those speakers, and then those speakers go and talk, and then they go and they barge into their talks with with a flag and shouts and and stop their conversation. And I said, I'm not supporting this. This is not, if right now you have a person standing up and talking, you disagree with them, then argue with them on the merits of their points. Your, your technique of conversation cannot be silencing them. It cannot be when a person talking and you're just shouting over them, raising flags, blowing horns, preventing them from speaking. That is not acceptable. You should let them speak. You should hear them out. And if you're right, if you're so right, you should argue back based on the merits of your points versus theirs. And if you are unable to do that, then probably there is something flawed with your logic. You know what? That, so what's interesting, I, one thing that I do at Rayon, I encourage people to be wrong. Because the second you're not prepared to be wrong, what's the thing? It's, um, who is it? Oh, it will come to me. Uh, progress is impossible without change. And those who can't change their mind can't change anything. Is it? It's the famous. It'll come to me. The English mm. English playwright, but but it's true. Like you know, again, I I think what's interesting is the fact that none of us are that smart. You know, and I, I said this recently to someone that if you were to take the smartest person in the world, let's say Elon Musk, just because everyone knows him, you take Elon Musk versus the average person, it feels like Elon Musk is far smarter than the average person. But if you zoom out and you consider what they both don't know, all of a sudden, neither of them are that smart, you know? And I think that actually what, what we have to almost encourage is that ability to evaluate, decipher good information from bad, right? Think critically and, and actually be wrong, you know? That's it. And, and I feel that un fundamentally that's what's missing um, from society. And that's a concern given how advanced technology is getting, right? People aren't prepared to be wrong. Fully agree. Whereas when you're wrong, right? Being wrong is actually a huge strength. The reason, so we're now really taking off. Rayon is really starting to get traction. Um, you know, and I mean like globally, like we've got relationships with like big companies um probably not after this podcast but uh you know that we've got we've got relationships there with companies that really admire and respect what we're doing but the reality is is that there's this anxiety which sounds ridiculous right um anxiety around people saying something that is going to get them in trouble and how do we advance the technology and advance humanity simultaneously to ensure that doesn't actually happen. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a combination of what we said, which is probably from a social construct standpoint, not to be scared to promote exactly everything we just said in the last five, ten minutes, right? Having the hard conversation, right? Like yeah. not to be afraid to be vocal about it, even when it comes at the price, right? So to promote that. And then on the other end, like, like the example that you gave with Twitter and Elon Musk, technology will come and complement that. And at the moment that those two things will happen, things will be okay. I, for one, agree with, I'm 
I'm much more, when people come and tell me, oh, you're right about that, or you're smart about that, this is far less interesting for me. I'm much more keen to have the conversation where people are telling me, if there is one thing, I work all over the world already now, well, not all over, but in a lot of places with a lot of culture, and there is one thing that I always hear from people that work with me that they said it's, it's surprising to us to hear you quite oftenly say loudly, oh, I was wrong. And said, we're not used to hear that. And I said, like, for me to hear that, I'm, I'm keen because if if I was wrong and I was, it basically just mean I was able to learn something new. And I value expanding my knowledge. So the point where you expand your knowledge is not when you validate something that you already know. It's at the point when you recognize that you are wrong by something and therefore you just acquired more knowledge. Yeah, 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 yeah. 100%. 100%. So one of the reasons we failed our first attempt at building this company, sorry, one of the reasons I think we failed our first four attempts at building this company is because I, I was surrounding myself with people that weren't prepared to tell me I was wrong. Now that could say that could be a fundamental flaw, me as a leader, right? It could be an immaturity in the other people that I'm working with. Um, or it could just be something that we're still just all learning, right? We're, we're still, we did, we don't know it, we're wrong until we're wrong. Um, and I think that from our perspective, I, I now really, and I will regularly sit down with like my core team and I will say to them, tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me what I should be doing better. And I push them, I'm like, we're not going anywhere until you tell me where an area where you feel that I can improve. And what's happened, we, about two years ago when we really shit really hit the fan a couple of years ago um you know yarn really piped up and started telling me this is what's wrong that's what's wrong this is what's wrong and since yarn has become more vocal right and i and he's talking more yeah so many things are going right and there's a, a real strength a real strength in just being able to know that other people know more than you, or sorry, being open rather to other people knowing more than you and not needing to be right. The reason Elon Musk is Elon Musk is because he doesn't need to be right on everything, right? He's, mm -hmm. he's enabled himself to surround himself with far smarter and far better people in specific disciplines. Exactly. Exactly. So that was why one of the talks that I gave when I sent you, it was how I wrote off $1.5 million in six months because it's how I went wrong. I think those type of conversations are simply more interesting. So on that, and again, focusing more on like how, how will AI shape the future of our lives? How do we teach? How do we learn? How do we educate the next generation to give them the confidence? I think that's what it is, the confidence to be wrong. I think that's the part where, so it goes, First of all, to the basic understanding that this is what we should strive for, right? So in order to achieve that, if you think like there, there is the first fundamental basic understanding that the methodology of teaching or the, the basic premise of teaching should shift from giving people knowledge into how to teach them to validate knowledge and how to teach them to have discourse and debate and conversations. Right? This is basically the, the basic fund fundamental change that needs to happen from the way that we perceive education. Then there is the part of understanding that the mediums by which that, 
that type of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, doctrine, if you like, can be pushed out, cannot be uh, the current tools and mediums we're using. It cannot be a, a, a two-hour lecture uh, on, a student, on a podium in a university or in a classroom. It needs to be in a form, we need to learn how to leverage tools like TikTok and like YouTube and like in, where you need to see and, and because look, you, you will not be able to change the fact that now uh, in many cases, especially youth, they learn how to consume information in small bites. And your ability to understand how do I take those messages? How do I take that doctrine? And how do I break it to small bite size packages and how do i then use different mediums that to what i'm using today for education to stream it out so the youth will consume that doctrine in those mediums that they are used to work uh, so we will be able to shape the society that we are operating in towards the society that we want that is basically where it's going John, no, it's it's this has been a very interesting discussion. As you were talking, I was actually thinking about the playwright. It was George Bernard Shaw, and I think that um, but you know what I um before about um, progress is impossible without change, and those who can't change anything, I'm sorry, those who can't change their mind can't change anything. It was yeah. George Bernard Shaw, but I think mm. to, to to finish on um to, um on someone you mentioned earlier, Mark Twain, right? Um. My favorite quote from Mark Twain is, um, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one instead. I think that's what it is. Um, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and, yeah, and I, I think what's interesting is that now what he's saying is, you know, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, I didn't have time to really think about what I wanted to say, so I wrote everything. And I think the education system moving forward. Rather than just try and go do it on mass, we have to really think about what is it that we want people to learn, how is it we want to create these opportunities, and really, you know, what are the what well, what are the technologies that we want to build to ensure that we're creating these opportunities? You know, that's it. It can't just be about volume, build, build, build. There has to be real purpose behind it. Yeah. But look, I've, I've really, I've loved this conversation. I could talk to you for another two hours. Unfortunately, uh, we haven't got the time to. But um, yeah, we're definitely going to have to uh, do a part two and we're definitely going to have to continue this conversation. All right, let's tackle Churchill because if we're finishing in the quotes, like Churchill is definitely one of my favorites. I admire Churchill. He's a, oh, a church, well, I, I, don't, I don't think I know any Churchill quotes, do you? What, Winston Churchill? Like when they... Oh, when... I've, got, I've got a grand. The... the... The greatest argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. So, <laughs> what yeah. is that from Churchill? Yeah, that's Churchill. You know that. I love this one when uh, when he said that that um, uh, England uh, when um, when England went to basically negotiate with Germany and said England needed to choose between a war or disgrace. It chose disgrace, and it's going to get war. And it, it's such a great saying, and it's so true, right? Like it was when they went and they basically, I think it was after the, it was just before the invasion to Poland, after, you know, gradually where Hitler was expanding and, oh. and Chamberlain was keep coming and, and folding and, and trying to avoid the, the conflict. And at the point where they basically, Churchill told him, 
there is, you have no choice. Like you either go there and you tell them enough is enough and that means war or you fold again. And if you fold again, you're just going to encourage him. And then uh, Chamberlain fold again, of course. And then he told him like, you had the choice between war and disgrace. You chose disgrace and you are going to get war. And it's the part of the, the reason I like that quote is because you shouldn't, like you cannot shy away